Coming up, growing brain tissue in the lab is surprisingly simple. There's not very much to it. Simply leave the cells alone. Some researchers are so modest. And the theorists that want to tear space-time apart. This is one of the things about physicists. They never stop asking questions. They never take anything for granted. And, um, you know, a small number of them have been thinking about whether there might be building blocks to space and time itself. Plus a possible solution to a climate conundrum. Why is CO2 rising but global temperatures aren't? This is The Nature Podcast for August the 29th, 2013. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Noah Baker. You'll probably have got the memo by now that global warming is happening. Generally, this is taken to mean that carbon dioxide levels are on the rise, and so is the global temperature. Only, for the past 15 years or so, carbon dioxide levels have been going up without a consequent heat increase. What's up with that? A Nature paper puts forward one explanation involving the Pacific Ocean as a big heat sink. I spoke to Nature's climate editor Michael White, asking him first of all how scientists have tried to explain the global warming hiatus so far. There have been a few explanations to date. One of them is that increases in aerosols, which can reflect incoming radiation from the sun, have led to a slight offset of the warming. Another is that changes in stratospheric water vapor content have been a factor. And a third, and probably the leading explanation to date, is that there have been increases in ocean heat content in the deep ocean. The problem with that explanation is that there are limited observations, so we're relying mostly on models for that particular inference. And I suppose there is a band of people who are called climate sceptics often who might also believe another theory to be in the competition, and that's that climate scientists have misunderstood it. How likely is that? I think for the sceptics, they view it as being quite likely that the models in climate science in general have misunderstood the relationship between CO2 and warming. And coverage of that idea in magazines like The Economist or The New York Times I think of like climate scientists to do a more intensive investigation of the mechanisms behind the hiatus that don't necessarily require a massive revision of our understanding of greenhouse gases and their effects on climate. A paper appearing on Nature's website this week does go some way towards offering an explanation for this hiatus, doesn't it? It does. So this is work coming up by Yoko Saka and Shangping Zi. And their idea was that we should look at the possibility that the cooling in sea surface temperatures in the eastern equatorial Pacific Ocean, which is the center of El Nino and La Nina climate cycles, might have been a factor in this. And it's an interesting idea because most climate models do a fairly poor job of realistically simulating El Nino cycles. So if they've been doing a poor job of of managing El Ninos, then they might also be doing a poor job of, of simulating the recent hiatus. So what they've done is to take different observations of this change in temperature in the equatorial Pacific Ocean and basically ingest that into this global climate model and see if doing that helps to resolve the difference between the observations and the model. And they found that, in fact, when you do this, you end up resolving uh, many features of the, the recent hiatus. What exactly do you mean by El Nino and La Nina, just to refresh people's memories? Normally, you have an upwelling of cold water taking place off the western coast of South America. And when this fails, you have the 
warm water staying on top of the ocean and the failure of the upwelling to take place. And this is what's called an El Nino event. And that can have major cascading consequences because this part of the ocean interacts strongly with major atmospheric circulation. So the signal can be transmitted globally. Conversely, the La Nina event is sort of an amplified condition of the normal state. So normally you have a cold upwelling, but in La Nina, this cold upwelling of this deep, cold, nutrient-rich water off of the western coast of South America is even stronger than usual. So that results in a cooling. And when you talk about the cooling in the Pacific Ocean in this way, do you mean sort of the entire body of water? Is this a really big effect that we're looking at? They're looking at only sea surface temperatures. So this is just basically the, the, the very, very top layer of the ocean. They can't at all resolve what's going on in the deep ocean. They're not trying to do that. And that's one possible criticism of this paper is that they're, they're basically forcing the model with observations. So they're not able to resolve the ultimate causes of this variation in sea surface temperatures or what might be going on in the deeper ocean. Are we seeing here kind of a La Nina type of a thing if we're talking about sea surface temperatures being a little bit cooler than we'd expect? Right. So recently there has been an increased frequency of La Nina events, especially in comparison to El Nino events. Yes. What does this all mean? Does this mean that this is just a natural climate pattern that we're seeing on top of a longer trend for climate to be affected by human emission, human carbon dioxide emissions? The authors do advance that as a logical conclusion from their research, but I think we have to be a, a little bit cautious here in the sense that They've only used one climate model, and uh, I think future research would have to replicate this result with other models. So it's an interesting way of refocusing attention on the role of these eastern equatorial Pacific temperatures, but it doesn't really resolve the underlying mechanisms, and it can't go too far into the future and in, in giving us information about what's going to happen in the next few decades. Is this in general, to be viewed as a good news story if carbon dioxide emissions aren't necessarily completely coupled to temperature? I mean, we're, we seem to be getting a bit of respite now. I think in the short term, it, it's probably good news for many people that global warming has, has stalled or hasn't gone on at the rate that it did in the late 20th century. But I don't think we can be too comfortable about this because CO2 is still increasing. The temperatures in the ocean are, are still uh, taking up more heat from the atmosphere. So there's no, there's no clear reason to believe now that we'll have a long-term respite. That was Nature Editor Michael White on the line from the San Francisco office, helping to clear up that climate conundrum. Find the paper at nature.com slash nature and look out for the Nature News Climate Special on September the 19th, when the fifth IPCC report will be published. Coming up in the research highlights, the year it rained so much in Australia that the sea level dropped. And we'll be sinking into the warm bath of science metaphor to see which ones float and which ones sink. But first, physicists are forever trying to work out the origins of everything. There always seems to be a smaller particle or a more fundamental process to get our heads around. And in a feature this week, Zia Morali reports on the continuing mission to pick apart reality, this time setting our sights on space and time. Zia joins us in the studio. Zia, space and time seem like fairly fundamental concepts in physics, but in fact, there could be something more fundamental than space-time itself. That's right. Um, you know, I think, you know, this is one of the things about physicists. They never stop asking questions. They never take anything for granted. And, um, you know, a small number of them have been thinking about whether there might be building blocks to space and time itself. Why is it that they think this? What is it that is failing about our current understanding of the universe that means we need these new building blocks? Well, we've got two wonderfully successful 
successful theories of the universe at the moment. Um, one that describes what happens on the larger scales, the way that planets move around stars. That's Einstein's theory of general relativity, which tells us that space and time are connected together in one big fabric that kinds of bends and warps around heavy objects. The problem is you've got another theory that explains things that happen on subatomic scales very, very well, which is quantum theory. And that doesn't assume anything like that about space and time. That kind of um, just assumes that space and time are static. They're in the background, kind of like the way we experience it every day. So now when physicists try to put the two together, they can't. And one of the questions then is, well, if they've got two very different conceptions of what space and time are, maybe we need to think more closely about what's going on there. And so there are various sort of theories about what could make up space-time, and I suppose we should just sort of dive in with the first one, which is uh, loop quantum gravity. Yeah, so that's a, you know, that's a very fun one, and it's you know, exactly that kind of idea of, of thinking, well, space-time is just made up of little things. What little things are they? loops why not you know these are these tiny little threads that just kind of wind together to form loops of a finite size so they can't squeeze down any smaller and then they connect together to create a kind of spider's web and that spider's web evolves over time and creates the fabric of space-time this sounds very complicated but there are slightly more simple or minimalistic ideas about where this space-time comes from such as causal sets could you give us an understanding of what they are I'll do my best for that one. It's, um, you know, it's a very imaginative idea that kind of takes things right down to the bare bones minimum of what space time could be made out of. So you don't even want to assume that loops exist. You want to say, well, what's the very smallest thing I can think of? And so what uh, the people who follow causal set theory say is that maybe it's just points or elements that really don't contain any information about space or time, but maybe just some kind of quantum information and these just hopefully will link together once again to create space-time. One good way of thinking about it is to think about the concept of temperature. So we all know what temperature is, we're sort of aware of kind of heat, but when you look down at a microscopic scale and you look at an individual atom, a single atom doesn't have a temperature. It's only when they come together and you think about their motion that this property that we all feel emerges. And so that's kind of the idea that they're going for with causal set theory, that somehow when you get a group of these points together, space emerges and space-time emerges from that. And a third theory that has been looked at is sort of a holographic universe. Yeah, this one is um, very kind of science fiction film E. It's the idea that sort of came out in the 1990s from string theory. And it tells us that you can kind of think of the universe, the kind of three-dimensional volume of the universe, as being enclosed within a two-dimensional surface. And mathematically, what happens on the two-dimensional surface kind of controls what happens inside the 3D volume. It's like finding out that you live inside a computer game, that, you know, everything about you seems very real, but it's not. It's kind of encoded on a two-dimensional chip somewhere else. These are all weird and wonderful ideas, but are there any of them testable? How can we test these theories? This is a controversial question. Most people would say you can't test them because you're trying to look at very small pieces of space and time that we just can't reach with experiments. But there have been proposals by very imaginative physicists. For instance, 
if space-time is made of small blocks, it's not perfectly smooth. It's sort of bumpy. And if you're small enough, you might be able to feel those bumps. So photons of light, for instance, might be able to notice the kind of the bumps in the road as they travel from very distant sort of gamma ray bursts to Earth. And by looking at the light that comes from that, we might be able to see, for instance, that the photons have slowed by the time they reach us. So that could be an indication that space-time isn't smooth and continuous, but is discrete and bumpy. I mean, you mentioned there are a small number of physicists working on this. Does that mean that the vast majority of physicists don't think this is a problem and we can just leave space-time to be one of these fundamental properties? I think they know that there's a problem, but it's a question of choosing what you want to devote your time to. And there are plenty of other questions, but I think they're probably glad that there are some very, very clever people out there who are focusing their attention on this. Zia Morali, once again, it's been a pleasure to have you boggle my mind. Many thanks for dropping in. Find the feature at nature.com forward slash news. Stay tuned to hear from the lab that's grown a little bit of functioning brain in a dish. Now it's time for the research highlights read by Charlotte Stoddart. Australia soaked up so much rain in 2010 and 2011 that global sea levels temporarily dropped. US-based researchers used satellite measurements and tidal gauges to show that the global sea level fell by 7 millimetres in that period. Normally, it's been rising by a few millimetres a year. The team found a parallel increase in the mass of water on land, particularly in Australia, where the shape of the land prevents most water from flowing into the ocean. That paper is in Geophysical Research Letters. You'll never be late again with the most accurate atomic clock ever built. It loses or gains less than one second every 30 billion years, ten times more stable than the previous record. Researchers in the US monitored changes in the energy levels of atoms. The atoms were trapped by magnetic fields and a web of laser beams and measured by more lasers. The resulting clocks could help make lots of things more precise, including satellite communications, GPS, and even tests of fundamental physics. That paper appeared in Science. You're listening to The Nature Podcast. We frequently find ourselves fighting cancer, piecing together puzzles and using many other colourful metaphors to explain science. So if you imagine uh, your grandfather gave you his hammer, but the handle's been replaced two times and the head's been replaced three times, is it still your grandfather's hammer? You could liken this to the operation at the circuit level of noise cancellation earphones. It's very similar to what you see when you watch the surface of a pot of water boiling. It's the same thing with the surface of the sun. It's a a boiling, churning, roiling fluid. Metaphors can certainly lend a big hand when you've got a sticky bit of science to get across. But are there dangers lurking in the wordy waters? I spoke to physicist and author Caleb Scharf, who's carefully applied metaphors in his own writing. I like to think of planets and planetary systems as the crumbs around the stellar cake, the star at the centre of a planetary system is the cake and then planets are really just these tiny little crumbs and it's a sort of homely metaphor but it's also quite accurate I think because it really is the case that planets are the size of crumbs compared to a cake and they are in a sense the the leftover bits after gravity has 
consumed matter and squeezed it together to, to make the, the central star. So I'm quite fond of, of that kind of analogy. And in general, scientists and the public understanding science find metaphors pretty useful. Metaphors are incredibly useful. Uh, I, I think you know, scientists themselves resort to metaphors all the time to understand um, the material they're looking at. You really have to do that for topics where you're studying things that are outside your everyday experience. And I think the critical aspect of metaphors, though, is that there has to be a degree of caution. Uh, no metaphor is perfect. So you always have to walk this this fine line between uh, a metaphor that's a little bit too over the top and doesn't quite capture uh, the, the reality of a situation, metaphor that's, that's a little too boring and doesn't really evoke the, the, the necessary sort of mental picture that you're trying to build. One of the things I've found fascinating is just the, the incredible range of reactions that you can get for the same piece of writing. You really just have to go with something that feels right for, for you, that you feel is reasonably accurate, because some people will love it, some people will hate it. And what's the danger here? I mean, part of the comment piece this week in Nature says that there, there are things that get lost in translation that we need to beware of. Have you seen examples of that happening? This is why it's such a fine balance that you can come up with metaphors that are very appealing, very attractive, but they actually set in place uh, incorrect conceptual framework. For example, in biology, people talk about junk DNA. And <laughs> as we've seen in recent years, it, there's really probably nothing junk about junk DNA. It's just it was a handy, a convenient label for something we didn't really understand. Um, and similarly, when people talk about genetic blueprints, this idea that there's this hard and fast uh, set of instructions for, for building certain biological structures, I think these days people were very cautious about that. And the danger of these sort of metaphorical ideas is that they, they get embedded in your mind. And as a, a working scientist, you then find yourself thinking along those lines. And sometimes that's not the way to do it. Sometimes it blinkers you to the broader truth. People have been talking about metaphor in science for, you know, for a very long time, since the advent of science and metaphor, probably. But are there recently any new issues you've noticed perhaps with the broadening out of scientific disciplines or with new disciplines entirely starting? I think we are seeing in a number of areas for example the notion of emergent phenomena the notion of complexity questions about whether or not ultimately science is something reductionist. I've, I've seen people talk about top-down cause and effect where sometimes it's the complex phenomena that give rise to the more fundamental, apparently more fundamental laws. And we don't have much language for that. Um, so I think you, know, you tend to struggle with the metaphors in that case. We're almost at a point with certain aspects of, of science, especially to do with complexity and emergent systems, where even our metaphorical armory isn't quite up to the task, I think. Do you think then as an extension of that, you know, scientists are pretty precise about things it's kind of in their nature do you think metaphors have a harder time in science a higher bar than they do in in literature perhaps in some sense thinking of literature as a scientist it, it, that seems like an extremely high bar you're trying to evoke human emotions you're trying to suggest subtle things and so on so i think that's that's extremely challenging as well i think the scientists challenge with metaphors is it's probably equal but it's different because you are trying to uh, remain accurate and precise 
and to not distort the truth, but you're also trying to provide a window into these concepts that are otherwise very, very hard to get a grasp on because they're outside our, our normal experience. I'd, I'd say that you know, science and literature have equally difficult challenges, but they're different challenges. The human brain may be the most complex structure in the universe. So while scientists have made simple guts, livers and even eyes out of stem cells, it's no surprise that they have struggled to make even a rudimentary brain in the lab. A team led by Jürgen Noblik of the Austrian Academy of Science in Vienna have got closer than ever before. They describe three to five millimetre blobs of brain cells that behave like the real thing. Their neurons talk to each other by firing electrical pulses and the cells mature and move around like those in a developing human brain. Noblik told reporter Ewan Calloway about his team's surprisingly simple trick to turn human stem cells into brain tissue. What is unique about our culture is that we actually have various parts of the human brain in one culture and we can demonstrate that they actually interact properly. Other groups have tried this and failed, so how did yours do it? So the miracle of the culture method that was developed actually by Madeleine Lancaster in my lab is to just simply leave the cells alone. There's not very much to it. One of the tricks that we did was to put them into what is called a spinning bioreactor, which is a culture container where the medium is constantly but very slowly stirred, and that significantly improves oxygen and nutrient supply. So these brain-like tissues, for lack of a better word, they just kind of form by themselves if you shake stem cells a little bit? More or less, yes. The only factor we had to add is retinoic acid because that's a morphogen that is usually secreted by the meninges, which is the shell that surrounds our brain, and uh, this we don't have in our culture. And uh, so this is something we had to add. But other than that, there is no specific uh, directional cue. It's, what, what is really fascinating is the enormous self-organizing capacity of uh, human cells. They like to form the right tissue. And if you leave them alone and just supply enough nutrients, they will do that. Well, when you looked at the, the individual cells and their connections and the molecules these cells make, how much, how much like a real human brain was it? Well, actually, it came quite close. So when we as scientists look at brain development, we subdivide it into particular individual processes. So we look at cell division, we look at the direction of cell division, we look at cell lineage, we look at cell migration, and we can show that all those processes are correct. That's, that's really cool that you can, you can recapitulate some of neural development in a lab, but what can you use it for? So one thing that we used it for was to demonstrate that we can recapitulate genetic disorders in culture and thereby have a system in which we can go back to the origin of the disorder and try to identify what was the original defect that occurred in the patient. We've also uh, been thinking about uh, using them to generate brain tumors, which could then be used in by pharmaceutical industry to test uh, drugs. But we are mostly interested in basic research. Right. I and mean, you used uh, your system to study one particular brain disorder called microcephaly. This is correct. Microcephaly is a very severe brain developmental disorder. The hallmark of this disease is a severely re reduced brain size. Many of the genes that are affected in the patients are actually responsible for determining the direction in which a cell will divide. And sure enough, in our organelles, we could show that 
the orientation of progenitor cell division in the developing brain is incorrect. But what we could then do is we could go on and uh, ask why does this lead to a reduced brain size. And the reason for that is because those progenitors, if they divide in the wrong orientation, what they will do is instead of making a sufficient number of progenitors, they will too, at a too early stage start to generate neurons. As, as a next step, could you look for drugs that reverse the, the defect in, in the migration of these cells or the direction that they move? Well, here I think we have to be realistic. We used microcephaly as a proof of principle. Even if we would find drugs for this particular disorder, I think we would have to apply them at a very, very early stage of um, pregnancy, and that would be very difficult. The ultimate goal will be to develop the system into a direction where we can model a lot more common brain disorders like schizophrenia or autism. There, of course, a potential pharmaceutical therapy would be a lot more promising. Could you ever see this technology being used to restore brain tissues through, through transplant? I do not think it is possible, and I also do not think uh, it would be ethically allowed to generate entire brain tissue and use that to, to repair brain damage. I mean, all the surgical problems that this would generate to implant tissue into a human brain, um, I think this would not be a direction that I would like to go. Finally this week, news time, and Richard Van Norden joins us to tell us about a story he's written for this week's news section. Hi, Richard. Now take us to Brazil, where some uh, scandalous gossip has been going on. This is all about how editors try and boost the profiles of their journals. Uh, Often a bit of a euphemism, boost the profile, often means try to raise the journal's impact factor, which our listeners will know is one of those numbers that journal editors really care about. It's a measure of how often the journal is cited, and libraries use it to look at which journals they should purchase. But also evaluators of scientists often use it to sort of have a little shortcut, a little heuristic to see how well the scientists are doing. And this has come under enormous attack for the last ooh, five, ten years, saying, why are we using this, this impact factor measure uh, in order to see uh, how well scientists are doing? Why aren't we looking at their work itself? Nonetheless, you know, editors of journals do keep trying to boost their impact factor. And for a decade, the done thing for editors wanted to do this was to try and cite themselves. So publish lots of papers that would cite their own journal, boosting their citations and raising their impact factor. But Thomson Reuters had got wise to this and started suspending journals that had done this too much. So some slightly dodgy goings on with regard to boosting the impact factors. What's the latest from Brazil then in in this case? Well, the Brazilian editors have discovered a new way to boost impact factors, which passed under the radar of Thomson Reuters detection algorithms. Essentially, uh, around uh, seven or eight editors agreed with each other way back in 2009 that they would publish papers with citations to each other's journals. Uh, Four journals all had their impact factors boosted, in some cases by as much as 75% or more, uh, by citations from papers published in the other journals. And this sounds like it was never going to be really a legal thing to do. It was just the fact that Thomson Reuters hadn't picked it up until now. Well, what happened was that uh, Thomson Reuters got tipped off last year to a, a kind of related case 
uh, where uh, two articles published in two journals referenced the third one and really boosted that third's impact factor. And after that, they invented this uh, program, this algorithm, to try and spot these weird patterns where a burst of citations from one journal lifts up another, which Thomson Reuters has called citation stacking because they stack from one journal to another. And that's when they discovered the Brazilian case. The Brazilian case involves four journals in an agreement. Now, interestingly, they blame this on uh, frustration at their own country's um, fixation on the impact factor. Yeah, you've, you've got some interesting quotes in your piece, actually, about how they've just sort of taken this comeuppance and, and run with it. Um, they seem quite repentant. Well, what's interesting is they've blamed it partly on frustration uh, with the education ministry in Brazil uh, called CAPES. Uh, it, it evaluates graduate programs in Brazil partly by the impact factors of the journals where the graduate students publish. And because emerging Brazilian local journals are in the lowest ranks of this scheme, few graduate students want to publish there. And then this is a kind of a vicious cycle that prevents local journals improving. Brazilian editors have campaigned for a long time to change this policy. And essentially, these editors decided to take the matters into their own hands and try and bump up their impact factors in another way. And so they say, well, it doesn't excuse our actions. We take responsibility for it. But uh, it was ultimately Capas's policy focusing on the impact factor that sort of contributed um, to our frustration, our attempt to subvert the system. Is Thomson Reuters happy now that it would catch most instances of this happening? Because it strikes me that if you had a wider network, a bigger amount of journals all doing this, it would be very difficult to spot. So Thomson Reuters uh, only spots it by looking at one journal in a pair with another journal. Uh, and in the Brazilian case, it's extended to four journals. So it's probably going to miss some. And the other thing Thomson Reuters does is it actually doesn't punish all of the patterns that it catches it only suspends journals' impact factors if it thinks that the change, the boost, has had a really significant effect on the journal's ranking. So in fact, there's quite a lot of journals that have quite high, say, self-citation rates, probably some journals with some high citation stacking that don't get suspended by Thomson Reuters. This is the first year they pioneered this algorithm. So it's kind of a warning shot across the bowels of editors who think this is a clever way to get around it. And maybe there are some other schemes as well. But, you know, Thompson Reuters is kind of catching up with the way that editors are trying to uh, get around the system. All right. Thanks, Richard. And let's hope your article gets lots of kosher citations. Check out the news site nature.com slash news for more on that story. That's it for this week. Next week is a special one. It's our 300th Nature podcast. We'll be celebrating with a big glass of the best science. And maybe a piece of that solar system cake from the metaphor segment. Meanwhile, I'm celebrating by leaving you in the capable hands of the others for a couple of weeks. Back soon. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Noah Baker. <laughs>